if you uh, have a seat, if you would, just slide in. I know we just released some of our children. Uh, maybe hold up your hand if you have any uh, seats, and if we have some ushers to help folks, a lot of folks in the back, that would really help us. Uh, several in the front row. be great. Just find your way. Just wave if you would. Um, get some of our folks seated anyway. Maybe some gentlemen could give up their seats. You know who you are. Gentlemen and scholars. I was asking a small group of guys uh, several years ago a uh, curious question. About what's my favorite uh, passage of Scripture in the Old Testament? We were studying that way and that question was asked. And I didn't miss a beat. Um, I said to them, Ecclesiastes 3.11. It's a very powerful passage. When you're, it, it, and it's really helped me and I, I think uh, just speaks to us. It is uh, stubbornly curious to use uh, the words of one of my favorite writers. But when you're alone in a room with the lights out and you're wondering if life has meaning, if your life has meaning and you're sitting there thinking, am I a random blob of tissue in an accidental cosmos just floating in a nanosecond of time? In other words, am I significant? This passage, it just haunts me and it allures me. And it's given me comfort and hope. It says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. You see, meaning is what we need. Meaning for us is like spiritual oxygen. It is not an option for humans. We have to have meaning in our lives. Now, I believe it's a lot like words. For us to decipher, to determine, to understand this idea of meaning, it's got to be put in a larger context. And let me illustrate what I'm saying. Let me say that one more time. For us to understand and determine meaning, it's got to be put in a larger context. And here's how I would illustrate it. I would illustrate it using the word, uh, or using words rather. Now, here's a word I I selected at random. A word called date. D-A-T-E. Let me ask you, church, is date, is it a noun or is it a verb? Depends on the context, right? Uh, I had teachers growing up. The teachers would say, write the date on your test paper. Now, that's a noun. I had a friend, this is a long time ago, different different place, yesteryear. Uh, A friend of mine would say, Robert, let's get some folks and have a date shake. Now, that's an adjective. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'd have several girls growing up would look at me and say, Robert, I don't want to date you. Um, That's a verb, a verb of death. I knew a guy one time, his name was really, this is true, his name was Larry Moon. And could you imagine how disappointed he was when he learned that his last name was a verb? Think about it. 9.30, a little sharper than y'all. But uh, you're, you and I, were like words. In fact, your life is like an unfinished sentence. And just like a word needs a sentence, it needs a paragraph, it needs a, it needs a chapter, it needs a book, a compendium of books maybe even a sequel, your life, that unfinished sentence, needs a larger context to it. And that's the very thing that I want to talk about this morning as we talk about heaven. 100% of you know probably that the scripture starts off by saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Someone once asked the great thinker Augustine, So what was God doing before He created the heavens and the earth? And Augustine said, He was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. Funny guy that, Augustine. But what was God doing? You know, we do have an answer. It 
it's a little bit for uh, your feeble-minded mind, but God was doing what? He was enjoying fellowship and community in the Trinity for eternity. It was this ceaseless sufficiency. And it was so good, so perfect, that He wanted to share it with others. You get that? When something's good, what do you want to do? You want others in on it. And it's so good as you invite other people in, it's what? Even better. At least it's supposed to be. And God says, let's invite others in. But before we invite them in, we've got to create them. And the Bible tells us that God made man. And in, in this creation, the Scripture tells us, don't, don't miss this, that He created a tree of life. And this tree of life, it says, He put in the center of the garden. And all His creation was good. He said, that's good, and that's good, and that's good, and that's good. And the only thing He said that wasn't good was man, in essence. Right, ladies? But He said, it's not good for man to be alone, and He created a woman. You see, the Genesis account is really wonderful. Don't get hung up on science. The Bible's not a scientific book. When it speaks on science, it's accurate. But it's not meant to be a scientific book. But it says to us, in a real time and place, now it uses image, it uses metaphor, but it was a real time and a real place, known only fully by God. And He gives some wonderful gifts in Genesis. In this account, it says that He first of all gives man the gift of Himself. What a beautiful expression. We can appreciate it all the more on a day like this. It says that man walked with God in the cool of the day. Were you out this morning early like I was when it was 58 degrees? After a summer like we've had. Man walked with God in the cool of the day. The first gift was the gift of himself. And as I mentioned a moment ago, he gave man the gift of community. He said that we ought to be together. We ought to share life together. Like my man Cedric that just walked out. Did any of you see Cedric walking out? He just waved to the preacher. Uh, We're buddies like that. He's like, hey Robert, I'm going to go out in the hallway. But God gives us the gift of friendship. Like me and Cedric. Like man and woman. Like uh, friends and family. And then He gives us the gift of work. And He says to man, by the way, in its original state, work was a gift. This work was given to us not after the curse, not as a result of the grand fall of man, but as a gift. He said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, renew it, have dominion over it, bring beauty and edification to the earth, delight in creation and add to it. Don't rape, pillage and exploit Don't spill oil in the gulf, but beautify the creation. And wonderful stories in this Genesis account that I've loved, I've meditated and thought upon. Y'all know the story that God created animals. Aren't you glad? And God created animals. And what did He do? What was that relationship? You remember? The Scripture tells us He let man, the first real art of delegation, He let man name the animals. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to be in that moment? I have. Could you imagine a creature being before the man? And that creature is set there, and man goes, hippopotamus. And God says, mm, all right, not my first take on it, but it's your call. Brings another one, man says, duckbill platypus. God rolls his eyes, furrows his brow, and says, all right, I'll give you that one. He brings another one in front of him, and the man running out of his creative juices, he's getting weary, he goes, dog. And God says, my name backwards. I like that. Kind of cool. He brings another animal. And the man says, cat. And God says, wait, wait, wait. I didn't create that one. God gives us the beauty. And what what a wonderful story, if you think deeper about it. 
I've said it before, I'll say it again. Anytime I mention Genesis, man, I believe God created. And it might not have been a literal seven days. Maybe it was, but He created. And here's what I believe, that He created the creative process. So however it came into being, God started it. And God created it. And He allowed man to share in it. And we share in that to this day. But remember what I mentioned earlier, the tree of life in the middle of the garden at the beginning. And then the Bible gives us a book at the very end, a book that you're scared to death of. A book that has so much apocalyptic stuff and so much harshness and so much imagery and metaphor. And, and, and it's just scary to you. And you don't read it. It says in Revelation 1-3, happy is he who reads the words of this book. But we don't read it. It's just too intimidating. If I were to stand up here and say, we're going to have a small group on the book of Revelation. Y'all come on over to my house. Probably not many of you show up, right? Well, maybe to see my 10,000 square foot house. But... After that, you know, you, you wouldn't be that interested in the book of Revelation. But Revelation is, we would think it's a book of endings. You can't argue against that, but the book of endings is a book of beginnings. And it says this in Revelation, this is, this is the last chapter of the Bible. Y'all know this, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the street of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Is there a more beautiful line in all the scripture than that? Do you think the nations need some healing today? No longer will will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Now that last line's a little spooky to me. Name on the forehead. But we'll see his face. That may be the best line in Scripture. So if I stumble and fumble and bumble up here and maybe say something that you're not sure about that stimulates you to go learn more, then that's a good thing. But I, want, I don't want you to miss this. I say it toward the beginning. Heaven is a place where we will see God. And we'll see Him face to face. It's going to be beautiful. Do you read some of that? Crystal. It's going to shine. There's a place called the street. I bought a chair from over there. It's called Glow. But Glow's got nothing on heaven. Somebody was bragging before the 930 service about recently coming back from Las Vegas. I said, don't tell me about your trip to Vegas. But they were bragging on the lights, right? Vegas has got nothing on heaven. When you go to Vegas, what you did stays there. When you're in heaven, the lights are brighter and we're going to be talking about it. We're not going to be worried about where we've been or the next thing. But the book starts with the tree of life. And the book ends and it's, it's an ending, but yet a beginning with this tree of life. This week, some of you didn't know it, but with my family our staff team, and one of the small groups I'm in, I asked the subtle question about heaven. And what I was doing was either making mental notes or writing something down, a little bit of trickeration. But I took your questions and comments this week on heaven and formed uh, a few questions that I want to walk through briefly as we look at heaven. I'm going to put each of them up, okay? So these come from you, some of you. When a believer dies, when do they go to heaven? Now, do you know? Is there clarity in your belief about this? Now, what I want to do this morning, 
in the scope of the time we have is to really elevate what the Scripture says about heaven. You can take it or leave it, but I stand here saying I believe the Bible and I believe in heaven because Jesus believed in heaven. And I want to believe in heaven as Jesus believed in heaven. So some of these questions, well, all of them are very important. I think you'll see what I mean. But when a believer dies, when do they go to heaven? Write down Luke 16. And a famous story about Lazarus. Not the Lazarus from John 11 that's friends with Martha and Mary that Jesus uh, raises from the dead, but another one. And in this story, Jesus talks about eternal life, eternal judgment. And He's abundantly clear that when someone dies, they're immediately transported to the next life. Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Most famously to some of you, the thief on the cross, Jesus said what? Today you will be with... Y'all need to practice. Today you you will be with me in paradise. Years ago, as a newlywed, when Susan and I were living in Coral Gables in Miami, Florida... We worked with college students. We had a pretty cushy life. We would just wear uh, shorts and flip-flops. And we we were on on the college campus, didn't have to take tests, all that. It was really cool, just worked with students. And we enjoyed that tropical, balmy climate. And we were looking ahead to a travel uh, agenda, to a trip that we were going to be taking to Colorado in November, Thanksgiving. I was uh, slated to emcee a conference in Colorado with some young professionals And we were really looking forward to it. We got on our flight and we headed out there and we were greeted with a Colorado snowstorm. Now, y'all know Mississippi. Once every couple of years, we get like a half inch of ice, right? And we go, we go crazy. We stay home for a week. We we forget that we're supposed to turn our wheel in the direction of the skid, right? I mean, we just go nuts. This is Colorado, the opposite of Mississippi. But by their standards, the travel was treacherous. And it was dark. And Susan and I get on a van with friends and strangers, mostly strangers. And it was a really dangerous trip. We were hearing reports on the radio. The guy was talking to somebody. We were losing service. It was, I mean, it was way up and down, a roller coaster ride. And we were slipping and sliding with, with the the right kind of tires on, as I understood it. We get to our room and we conk out. We, We were like, thank you, God. We're here. We made it safe. In the wee hours of the morning. And that morning when we woke up, I was the first. And I went over to a window knowing we had pretty good digs. And I opened up that window. And in a moment we went from darkness and fear to alpine beauty, snow-capped mountain peaks. In an instant, gorgeous. You see, some branches of our faith, some people take some scripture, misapply it, and they teach that we, that we uh, get into a state of unconsciousness. We move into a, a deep sleep. Now, there's lots of different views. If you've had a worldview class, I know uh, I've been invited to attend one at Millsaps. But if you have a worldview class, you know that views on the afterlife fall into several different main categories. Naturalism is one. We talked about it last week when, when we talked about the idea of a soul. But naturalism says, hey, that you, when you die, you die, that's it. Thus, your life is so insignificant. And then there's reincarnation, which is taking root here in our land more and more, flowing from Eastern mysticism. 
And then there's other ideas like universalism. If you've read some of Rob Bell anytime lately, he's kind of slipped on one of America's mainline pastors. I, for one, have read his books. He's a brilliant thinker, but he slipped on into uh, universalism, which is the idea that everybody uh, goes to heaven. When he wrote that book, John Piper put on Twitter, Farewell, Rob Bell. And it just kind of started the talk. But universalism is one idea. No judgment. Everything kind of works out in the wash. And then there's an idea that is shared with some of my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who think there's a purgatory, a a, a great place where we are suspended, where life is just kind of stopped and we have to wait. We're caught in a netherland. I call that middle school. But uh, some people believe that's uh, an existence after heaven. But the scripture, y'all, is very clear. And I want to preach the whole counsel of God. And I want to tell you this morning, especially if you've had a loved one, and their life is hidden with Christ and God, that they are with Him now. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Second question that you gave me this week, sort of. Well, I know my husband, wife, children in heaven. And why isn't their marriage in heaven. Now, as I met with the staff this week, uh, I, I said, hey, you know, I'm preaching on heaven Sunday. What do you guys got? What are your ideas on it? And the conversation really, they didn't have a lot to offer, not a lot of questions or comments. It, it reminded me of a couple of things. Number one, we don't know much about heaven. Number two, we need new staff here at Fondren Church. <laughs> but truth to be told, Molly who was singing up here earlier. She was singing about freedom. There's freedom. And apparently Molly's excited about the freedom of not being married to Will in heaven. We found that out. She said, till death do us part. That's what she said. So when she gets to heaven, she's free from Will. Which has got to hurt that she said that, and then I'm repeating it here in front of all these folks. Uh, When Jesus was resurrected, there was a doubter. You remember the doubter? Doubting Thomas. John 20 tells us this account that he was recognized. In John 21, the disciples, do you know this? They had breakfast with Jesus on a lake shore. They had the little fish minis, like, you know, predated the um, chicken minis that Chick-fil-A has. But they were together. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says that Jesus was uh, recognized, that he appeared uh, in front of 500 people. That was the beginning. We wouldn't be here today without that moment, without that narrative, without that historical happening in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 6, says 500 people. Jesus took the disciples, all of His guys, up to a mount of transfiguration. I believe God gives you and I, if we're open, He gives us glimpses into the life beyond. Jesus takes the disciples onto the mount of transfiguration recorded for us in Luke 23. And it says, I'm sorry, in Luke 16, it says to us, uh, that the disciples there, they noticed too. Do you remember? They noticed Moses and Elijah. And I say to you, if they recognize people that they had never known or met, how much more will you and I recognize people that we know, our loved ones? First Thessalonians, well, let me, before I say that, let me say this. This is difficult for some of us. Jesus said this, for in the resurrection, He's saying when it's all said and done, when heaven even gives way to the new heaven and the new earth, He says, in this resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What does that mean exactly? I'd love for you to go and study it yourself. In the context of this 
passage of Matthew 22, Jesus was being tricked by people that were wanting to stump him, by people that had been married multiple times, about the afterlife, different things. But Jesus seems to be clear that there's no marriage in heaven. I would say that from this passage, there's no marriage in heaven. Really, there's one marriage in heaven. And Revelation talks about it. The marriage of the Lamb, the feast and the table, the banquet, the glory of it all. One marriage. And who is the bride? You are. Fellas, it's okay to say it. But we marry Jesus. But back up a second, because this book of the Bible is brilliant. And it teaches us, it answers the big questions of life. It gives us explanation for things, but it invites us into a curiosity about things, a wonder about things. Yes, even a speculation of what will it be like. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the trumpet, the final resurrection of the dead, when the new heaven and the new earth will take root. And Paul says that we grieve. This passage is about togetherness. It's like if you and I had a fun weekend together. We were brothers and sisters in Christ and we circled up. And we, every time I'd say we and together or you would, we would feel that. We'd be like, yeah, we're, we're a team, we're a family, we're a church, we're... We're a part of a movement. And Paul says, we grieve. And that means what? It means if you've lost someone, Joyce. It means you and I and us, we, we, we grieve, Rachel. But we don't grieve, Paul said, like the world. We don't grieve as those without hope. And that means you big burly man, if you lose someone that you love and there's a hole in your heart, cry. When I lived in Miami, Ray Lewis lost a friend. I had a part of the memorial service and I don't know if I've ever seen a grown man who could take like 10 of us out right now. But I don't know if I've ever seen a grown man weep like this man wept. But you can weep and you ought to weep. John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. Great memory verse, y'all. But we don't weep as those who have no hope. Why? Because we'll be together. We'll be together. 1 Thessalonians 4, y'all, there's a continuation of our lives. We will know each other and we'll recognize each other. There will be a homecoming. There will be a reunion. My wife was here at 930. And I said to that congregation, to our 930 crowd, I said that she's my best friend. And though we'll not be married, this is tricky, though we'll not be married, I'll know her like in the best way. And there'll be a continuation of the relationship that we have. Another question submitted. If we already go to heaven or hell after death, why is there another judgment? Have you guys been confused about this in Scripture before? It mentions uh, several different judgments and the timing and sequence is quite curious. Uh, Write down Romans 14.10. Great passage. And when I read this, I I thought of what I read years ago by the great intellect Daniel Webster, who said, 
The greatest thought my mind has ever entertained is my accountability to God. Romans 14.10 says that we will all stand before the judgment of God. Everybody. Everybody. But do we stand before the judgment of God? Paul would say in Philippians that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow to the glory. We'll confess Christ. We'll confess the ultimate truth. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 is where it could be confusing. If you think that this is about religion and that God is mad at you and not madly in love with you, and that you have to work your way, and you have to earn His approval, and you've got to do enough good deeds, and that somehow there's going to be this grand scale, the famous bell curve, and you'll be weighed by your good and your bad deeds, and how well you've done in light of other people. Then listen, there's a great judgment, in Romans 14.10 is about there, there's a judgment that determines the overall direction of our eternity, with God or without Him. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that there's a judgment for believers. Now, why would believers be judged? Do you know? You've already, earned, you've, already, I'm sorry, you've already received your salvation. Why then this judgment that's talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.10 other places? Anybody know? One word. Rewards. Now, this is where the sermon gets weird. This is where I, for one, want to be humble and tell you that there's a lot about this that I don't understand. Oh, God forbid that you would have a mansion in the center of heaven and me be in some corner cabin, right? So rewards becomes, it becomes kind of a, an unknown concept. And you and I ought to agree with that, but let's not subtract it from God's equation. And here's what I want to say, quoting the famous C.S. Lewis, what we weave in time, we wear in eternity. What you're doing now counts. When did Jesus say eternal life begins? Do you know? In John 17, He says, this is eternal life, that you may know Him. In other words, it begins right now in a walk by faith. And how you live and how I live, it really matters. Uh Uh-oh, some old school preaching is about to happen here. How you spend your money matters. Whether you're greedy and hold it all in or whether you freely give it. Do you believe what God has built in about giving a percentage back to Him? What do you do with your time, not just your money? The talent, do you bury that talent as Jesus preached about? In fact, Jesus says that we live in this world not by sight but by faith. But do you know when we see Jesus? Do you know according to Matthew 25 saying, when do we see Jesus? The poor, the naked, the imprisoned. The least, the lowliest, the last. How you and I live really matters. Hey, y'all, there's a continuation. And it really matters. We're accountable to God and we'll stand before a judgment. And there's a judgment for believers. And a lot of it I don't understand. But hey, I don't have to. And Revelation gives us the 20th chapter gives us, uh, I think it's verse 13, check me on that later, not now. But in Revelation 20, it talks about the great white throne judgment. Have you heard of this? And it's the judgment on those who don't know God. And it's final. And there's nothing to indicate anything but that. Paul told Timothy, God knows those who are His. You know what I do? I rest in that.
It never says, I know those who are His. It doesn't say that you know those who are His. It says, He knows those who are His. When a baby dies, does he, she remain young, grow up, or mature instantly in heaven? Write down a fascinating passage. Write down Isaiah 11. It occurs, this unfolding occurs in those first several verses, maybe 3 through 6, I'm not quite sure. Here's what it says. Beautiful imagery. But I do believe that it gives us some real reference to the new heaven and the new earth, the ultimate restoration of this earth. Now, why do we preach that, by the way? Why would the Scriptures tell us, as it says in 2 Peter 3, that the the earth is going to burn? Have you heard that? The earth is going to end in destruction, but just because it's destroyed doesn't mean it's eliminated. And there is a difference. Now you have to get to the precise language of the New Testament. But God will. There's going to be a fiery ball. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But Isaiah 11 says this about the new heaven and the new earth. It says, uh, how beautiful is this? It says that a leper will lie down with a goat and a lion with a calf. A little child will lead them. A young infant will play around the hole of a cobra. A little child will put its hand in the nest of a viper. Now, close your eyes for a second. If you trust me. And picture that if you would. It might be a little rudimentary, but just picture a small child at play around a hole that you know a big snake is about to come out of. In fact, the snake's coming out of the hole. What are you going to do? You're going to run to that child, especially if it's your child. And you're going to rescue, right? Y'all come back with me now. Why? Because that's what's going to happen. I I know a friend out in the reservoir, sitting on a child sitting on the front porch. Poison snake comes up and bites them. They're running to the hospital here in Fondren. But not the new earth. Not the new world that God has created. But you see, Isaiah 11 tells us that there are children there. Now, a couple of things here. This is... Jars the mind a little bit, but I believe I was studying from some um, smart Christians, if you will, who understand a lot about science and such. And they were saying, according to DNA, that we talked about a little bit last week when we were talking about our mind, body, will, soul. They said that according to DNA of the blue, human blueprint, that uh, the optimal level of human functioning is between, uh, I think they said, 25 and 30 to 32 years old. How many of you are already in that age range? Raise your hand, or you're not there yet. All right. How many of you? How many of you say 32, 32, 33? Anybody? All right. Josh, again, it's all downhill, brother. All downhill from there. But it would stand to reason. Some would presuppose that if there's a continuation and that we uh, enter into a state of perfection, that we would be that would be probably the prime age. But I believe, I believe, you don't have to. But as I meditate and think on the goodness of God. I believe that every parent who's lost a baby or a child will be able to see that child grow into maturity in a perfect world. I believe it. Next thought. Are our loved ones in heaven aware of what's happening on the earth? A little creepy there, huh? Revelation 18, verse 20. It says that the angels looked down on Babylon. If you know a lot about Babylon, man, it was, it was brutal. Brutal regime. They plundered and oppressed people. And it says that the angels rejoiced with the saints 
and the prophets and the elders as they look down and say, God has brought judgment. And they're joyful about what God has done. This is more famous to some of you in Hebrews chapter 12. It says that we ought to run the race with perseverance. Why? Because there's a great cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? Now, Paul was relying here, or whoever the writer of Hebrews was at this section, he was relying on something very famous, very notable to the Greeks, the athletic imagery. Remember, they gave us our Olympics. They were in the arena. And he says that the folks who've gone on, whose lives are hidden with Christ in God, that they are watching and cheering from the grandstands of heaven. So we ought to run the race. We ought to finish what we've started. We ought to live fully and live well. And when God says the ticker stops ticking, then that's His business and His timing. But for us, we live well. Luke 15.10 says, somewhat famously as well, that there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. When one person changes, when one person moves from darkness to light, heaven is ecstatic about it. Now, here's what I believe. For those who've gone on to heaven, they don't yet have all the perfection. And we will never have omniscience as God has. It does say that we will be like Him, but nothing says we will be entirely like Him. 1 John chapter 3. But we will be able to look. And I believe those who've gone before us can't see everything. I don't think they can be tainted by everything. But I, can, I think they can see what God allows them to see. And they are, for us, a great cloud of witnesses. Heaven rejoices when someone comes to faith. When a, when a marriage is reconciled, when friends who've been at odds come together, when your own life, when you become to live with integrity and say, no more hiding, I'm coming clean. Jesus, change me. Heaven rejoices. And remember the Lord's Prayer, as it is on earth, as it is in heaven. And the idea there is that you and I would not just long for a homecoming, fold our arms and live in a odd sort of way, but that we would actively be living lives that are redemptive, that we would be involved in that process. Now, remember what I said earlier, quoting from C.S. Lewis, what we weave in time, we wear in eternity. What are you going to bring into eternity? Well, that's a nice jacket you have on. That's a really nice car you came in. You got some cool stuff, nice jewelry, nice ring. Congratulations on the engagement. What are you going to take with you? Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, my words don't stand forever. Ask my family. Ask my friends. Ask the people that I've predicted football games already this year. My words don't stand forever. I say a lot of things. They are not correct. They pass away. They're forgettable. But what God says, it stands. And amidst the withering grass and the flower that fades, you and I ought to hide His Word in our heart. We ought to get deeper into the Word and let the Holy Spirit of God illuminate. As Ephesians 1.13 says, to open the eyes of our heart. Don't you want to see better? Don't you want to experience God more? Don't you want to grow in understanding and be less foolish and more wise? Last question. What's the most common misconception of heaven? This is a, a guess. This is an opinion. But for me, in talking to some of you, and thinking of my own life, I think the most common misconception is that heaven is going to be boring. Now, how many of you want to go somewhere that's boring? 1979, television launched a new network called C-SPAN. Ever heard of it? And I guess they responded to massive public demand to have one camera angle to show exciting shows like agricultural subcommittee hearings and visits to presidential grave sites and lectures from obscure professors at liberal arts colleges. 
Boring stuff, right? Anybody going home to watch C-SPAN today? Anybody? Exactly. A couple guys in the back. They're bitter about standing in the back. No one. It's boring. You're weird. You're a nerd. You're a geek if you're going home to watch C-SPAN. Man, we don't. And the idea of boring for us is when novelty wears off, when you're no longer stimulated. Kind of an embarrassing word. But you're no longer stimulated. Uh, What brings pleasure, excitement, what entices you, loses its luster. It's subpar. It's boring. Like Ole Miss in football this season so far. Winning, winning, winning. It's boring. Mississippi State, exciting. We're mixing it up a little bit. Loss, a win, a loss, a win. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. Ole Miss, I understand, is going to Alabama this weekend. It won't be boring anymore for Ole Miss fan. Six days away. But here's the common misconception. The misconception is, and it's jokes, right? It's jokes at the bar. When you're throwing back a pint or a quart at the bar, Fondren Public, I've seen a lot of y'all. And you're joking, and you're joking about heaven. You're like, as Billy Joel said, I'd rather what laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Do you get that? The idea there is hell's going to be a lot of fun and heaven's going to be boring. Now, is there a bigger lie? Our God's a happy God. And we are not going to be floating on a cloud with a harp on our lap and time on our hands. And this whole thing about being perfect is confusing some of you. Because the idea, as Scripture teaches and it infers, we will always be learning about the depths of the riches of the majesty of God and seeing His face and reveling in His splendor and reconnecting with people and having it all made right and new and having every wrong reversed and experiencing the healing of the nations. Ready for this? It won't be boring. Man, I thought we'd get one amen on that. Let me close by sharing with you three words, just kind of, I shouldn't say random, but they're just kind of isolated. But write them down if you'd like to write down. The first is groaning. All right? If you're my age or older, every time you bend down to pick up something, you groan. When you experience a travail, a hardship, you groan. Doesn't matter your age, you groan. In fact, listen to what it says here in Romans 8. By the way, you're not going to feel this, but Romans 8 mentions the word hope. Uh, a bunch of times. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Susanna Ash had a baby two days ago. She was at church at 9.30. Next idea. And not only the creation, here it gets personal, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen, not hope, for he who hopes for what he sees. Do you get that? Now, what does it mean? I didn't read that right. Somebody laughing at me. Earthquakes, famine, pestilence, tsunamis, BP oil spills. There's a lot that we could put into this. The collective groaning of the planet. Seismic shifts. The people, uh, renowned geologists will tell us, whoa, that's some good science there, Bible. That's really good science. Our earth is groaning. 
And so are we. Because we are not home. I mentioned it last week. Chronic dissatisfaction. To confess and acknowledge your chronic dissatisfaction. We're going to be groaning. Until the redemption of our bodies into the new place. Let me... Let me give you another word, glimpse. God could have created a glimpse. God could have created procreation without pleasure, touch without sensation, embrace without emotion, vision without color and hue. He could have, but He didn't. And every gift that you and I experience is a glimpse of heaven. Have you ever thought of it that way? It's just a little glimpse. Have you, have you ever been in a moment where you revel, you walk out on a day like this, and you kind of say goodbye to summer, and you feel a little bit of a Christmas? And guys, you're thinking about getting out in the woods, not on Sunday because you'll be at church, but you're thinking about getting out in the woods and just reveling in the good gifts of God. James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift is from above that comes down from the Father of lights. There's no shifting or shadow. God doesn't change, but you change and I change. Our moods fluctuate. The world we live in is a roller coaster. We're groaning. But the good God who doesn't change gives us gift after gift. And I would say to you, if you're living out Colossians 3, 1 to 4, if you're setting your affections, your mind on things above, if you're seeking things that are above, then you are going to be more perceptive to the good gifts of God in your life. And they are not just a little temporary gift. It's a precursor. It's an appetite to heaven itself. And if you think it's good here, oh my. The last word is prepare. It's the word prepare. Now listen, if you will, some first century history that I think you might find fascinating. When it was time to get married, young ladies would get married early back then in their teenage years, in their early teenage years. Now I've got one daughter, this won't be true for her. 35, she starts dating. 13, 14 years old, the mother would be, would be the largest determiner if she is, quote-unquote, of age. And when the young lady would be of age, that father of that young lady would hang out with some fathers of some young men. And if they felt like they could work out a deal, then they had a, a, a best to be described as an event. And at this event... Like we see on the show The Bachelor now with the rose, they would use a cup of wine. And you talk about potential, you talk about pressure. This young man would stand there in front of most, all of his friends and all of his family. And this potential wife, friend, lover, soulmate. And if she would drink from the cup, she would agree to marry him. Seal the deal. She didn't have to drink from the cup, it was her decision. She could say, I reject the cup. Do you you ever recognize these words? Let this cup pass from me, she could say. But if she drank it, she would say to that young man, let's do this. And this young man would revel in it. But he would go home and he would go back to his insular, I-N-C-U-L-A-R, large multi-family dwelling. And the time was not right for them to get married because some things had to happen more precisely. Listen, more precisely, something would have to be built. This young man, through the care and supervision of his father, who probably looked a lot like Tim Allen or Bob Vila, he would add on an addition to his home. And that room that they built in his father's house, that would be the room where his bride-to-be and him would start their life together. 
and he would build that room and that father would oversee the project and that young bride-to-be across town would wait and she knew that she was getting married. She just didn't know, ever heard this phrase? She didn't know the day or hour. But she knew it was coming. And this young man had to take his cues from his wiser father. We've lost that in our culture, hadn't we? But this guy looked up to his dad. His dad oversaw the project and his dad would say, it is done. And when it was done, they would go. The young man would go. Sometimes even taking some of his fellas. And they would make their way. But they would often go, as you can imagine, in those days, they would go to a home that was insular, that had a lot of people in it. How would he know? He's never been to that house. They've never consummated anything. They hadn't hooked up, young people. He would go and he would know her room because she would know of his coming. She would put oil and light a lamp and place it in the window. And he would know. And he would lead her out into a celebration that the townspeople would come to. And he would say to her with this other cup of wine, she hoisting hers and everybody in the midst doing the same, he would say to her, I told you, I went to my father's house to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. One of them is for me and you. Recognize those words? I shared them in a funeral this week. John 14, 12, this is Jesus. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jay, we'll just pop them up real quick. But there's several verses with this beautiful word, prepare. Psalm 23, 5, the Lord's prayer. I mean, the, the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I'll prepare a table before you. Prepare a table. It says what? Hebrews 11. God is a preparer of a city. You see, God prepares a room in His Father's house. A table that we can feast at. A city that's like no other. But look what Jesus taught. He taught this because there's a tendency to not live out Colossians 3. That we don't set our mind and our affections and seek the things that are above. We seek things that are here. And He said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared... Whose will they be? You see, your heavenly Father is a preparer. And the groaning and the glimpsing that He gives us that is allowed to happen to us, in the midst of that, He's preparing a banquet table, a room in His Father's house, a whole new city like no other. But you are also preparing, or you're not prepared. Or you've prepared a life that's not ready for the next. Oh, you fool! So to think about heaven, I would invite you to read and learn. I would suggest a couple of books. One is by Ravi Zacharias. It's called Recapture the Wonder. You've got to put your thinking cap on, but it's deep and it's beautiful. And then one that's an easier read, that's a, a compendium of question and answers about what heaven is like from the best heaven thinker I've ever read from, Randy Alcorn. 
And some of you have read this, hadn't you? Or you've been given this book in a time of grief. Man, do I recommend this. So we think of heaven. And as we live, we say, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. And I, for one, say the greatest thing about heaven. Remember that tree? Tree at the beginning. Tree at the end. And you see, life between the trees matters because there's life beyond the trees. I want to be prepared for the one who lovingly is preparing for me. A marriage like no other. Like no other. Would you pray? God, we want... We want to fall at Your feet. And in 2013 in America, that's kind of a hard thing to even say. What would others think? We don't want to change our religion or change our ways, but Lord, when we think of how great You are, and the city, the room, the table... It just seems that it reverses it all. That things we think are significant really aren't. And things that don't seem so significant might actually be. Oh Lord, how, how it could change us if we would orient ourselves to a, a future home. That's beyond the wildest of imaginations. And God, for the mystery, for the perplexity of... Ideas and metaphors like having our foreheads stamped. Lord, I pray that we would learn all that you could teach us. But when it comes to preparation, I think of what Paul said to the Corinthians. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Jesus, we say thanks. Could we worship you more now? Lord, I pray as I look at faces of some that I know, and Jesus, those you fully know, who've gone on before us, grieving hearts, I pray that for 1 Thessalonians 4 to be real, that the grief would be different than the world's grief. Because there's hope. Lord, I so thank you that in the midst of what seems to be meaninglessness and mind-numbing boredom, we groan, we eagerly await 
Lord, I pray that this very reality would not be so otherworldly that we miss it. But the Lord who loves us and who prepares for us this great marriage and this feast, this face-to-face worship, that it would affect homes here and marriages here. Parent-child relationships. And teaching us to number our days. To really be wise in our walking and worshiping of you. God, we want to sing and worship you now. I pray for a freedom in this place. And I pray for some who are heavy-hearted today, who have cobwebs in their minds and confusion. I pray that you just sweep through this room with your manifest presence. And let us sing and let us exalt you. Lord, let us pray together. May we, may we pray together. In Jesus' name. Would you stand? And I'm going to be down front. Gary's going to be right here. Jason, if you're able to help us again by being right here. We're just three of us down front, ministers here, to love and to pray with you if if you feel so led. Give us that opportunity now. Let's worship God. Let's not worry about these few moments or what others think. Let's give Him our worship. I've said it before. You may want to pray with someone next to you if you know them. You may want to do that in this moment now. Let's offer Him our worship. Bright white gates, breathing in and out your grace, and all around me melodies rise, and echo with the joy inside. So I start to sing. I can't sing loud enough I can't sing loud enough When I'm singing for you, my God I can't sing loud enough I can't sing loud enough When I'm singing for you, my God The thunder rolling Brilliant of light The rebirth in the heavens shine Saints and angels stand in awe Captured by the beauty 